熬夜，为了做你熬那边，最熬夜，熬夜，为了给你做你熬那边，最在发光，就在眼光内，在这波浪的。Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is anarchy and education. The public school exists to make automatons and to reproduce class hierarchies and authoritarian power dynamics. How different is 2019 from 1906, when Emma Goldman was writing in *The Child and Its Enemies* that schools drive children to become foreign to themselves and to each other? Arranged into files, classified and numbered, with quantity giving way to quantity, and here we are living the consequences. There are better ways to learn. Today's guest is Robert Hayworth, editor of two recent compilations published by PM Press on anarchist pedagogies and radical informal learning spaces. And co-editor with Mark Bray of a Francisco Ferrer reader called *Anarchist Education and the Modern School*. Hayworth is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Foundations and Policy Studies at Westchester University. He teaches courses focusing on the social foundations of education, anarchism, and critical pedagogies. It should be obvious that any learning done in a hierarchical system will first be about that system, about the structure of power and how the learner, the student, is a receptacle for instructions about her place in the social order. Regardless of the content of a particular lesson or discipline of study, Marshall McLuhan's pithy formulation that the medium is the message rings very true here. But it also indicates a way out: create other spaces of learning, spaces outside the institutions of state power, where learning can occur because it is freely sought and because it gives pleasure. It probably won't surprise you that our guest today began to be critical of the systems of state and corporate power via the lens of punk music. As a ten-year-old, he was transfixed by a poster in his older brother's room of the album cover to the 1979 album *Feeding the 5000* by the anarcho-punk band Crass, featuring the face of Ronald Reagan on a muscle-flexing bodybuilder and Margaret Thatcher expelling hot dogs and human skulls out her backside. A taste for subversion seemed only natural. To honor that experience, the music of Crass accompanies us throughout, though none of the songs off that album. Sorry, Rob. This is I ain't thick. It's just a trick, off of Stations of the Crass. And now, 
Anarchy and Education with Robert Hayworth on Interchange on WFHB. So let's start uh, because this, you know, this these books are about learning spaces and about pedagogy and education. Uh, you know, we have to start with the idea that a public school, as you say, has uh, in this country been compulsory for I don't know how long, um, and com- compulsion isn't freedom, right? Com- right. Compulsion <laughs> isn't autonomy. Compulsion isn't in you know being able to do the things you want to do. It's an agreement that apparently we make as a social contract to live under a state, right? To be compelled to be created by a school system. And one of these things that I think that is somehow difficult or continues to be confusing to people is that, you know, we try to fight for public schools now, right? right. So, so we've, been, we've been arguing and arguing for a long time, I guess, you know, I'm sure before Reagan, but Reagan, Thatcher, this, this is where, you know, things start to get really into the privatization world. Schools fighting against privatization, and we then privilege the public school as this great, wonderful thing. But historically, you know, it's entwined with the state, right? It is, it is doing the service of reproducing the world we live in. Correct. We can look historically, like let's say, for example, Horace Mann, mm-hmm. who's quote unquote the, uh, the founding father of, of public education in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah. I had to, I, I have a master's in teaching myself. It was one of our primary things to do, right? <laughs> to to right. talk about yeah. Horace Mann. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and and I think people, again, get a, a sort of misunderstanding or misread of, of his sort of work is that he he had he was a great politician, if you under, if you remember correctly. I mean, and the way he, he had to sell basically public education to wealthy folks to pay taxes for poor people to go to school. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so um, how do you do that? Well, you you know, you have to de- you have to develop an education system that basically will meet the needs of of, of that economic order. I mean, Bowles and Gintis talked about in 1976 in schooling in capitalist America, but they really said that the education and public education in the United States is paralleled, right? Um, or correspondence with, with what they're talking about, uh, with, with the economic system. And so you actually have to have a certain type of educational system that, you know, as Adam Smith basically said, you know, you need an education system so the workers will exploit themselves, right? Right. And they'll buy into a specific economic order in order to say, yeah, this is the, this is what I have to do. Right. You know, and so, uh, now in contemporary times you have students that, you know, basically will put themselves in or are forced to put themselves in debt, um, and basically go to school in order to, pay it off right. from a credit standpoint or debt standpoint and basically, you know, living, you know, until they're, you know, t- like for me, you know, Hey, you know, I think they told me I'd pay mine off t- when I'm 72. <laughs> um, and hopefully, I don't know, <laughs> maybe I'll be gone before then, but yeah. they'll probably, uh, they'll probably slap it onto my kids or something like that. So, but you know, these sorts of things, uh, coincide with, you know, they're really, um, you know, some of the work that, that we've done, you know, in years past in the eighties, at least is, you know, trading in our union card for a credit card and seeing how mm-hmm. that kind of has played out in terms of debt. Um, and now education, basically you have to have an education, a bachelor's degree, those sorts of things in order to at least get your foot into the door at the ground level, right. Of certain things. Mm-hmm. And now master's degrees are, are like, you got to have these sorts of things. But 
But I mean, getting back historically, it's like that's the sort of reason reasoning that Horace Mann, as as much as he's touted as this sort of you know this person who wanted public school, of course, his orations and you know his talks were all about that. But in the background, he was trying to get you know basically people. If you read Michael Katz's work and other folks saying, "Hey, we need to have people." Um, or we need to have an education that meets the needs of sort of pre-industrial capitalism. Right? Right. Um, and later on, you know, same way, we need to have an education system that basically prepares people to, you know, for the workforce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think you quote someone else too, uh, and it may have been Katz, the idea of, you know, having this kind of schooling. Mm-hmm. I think the word words used were forestalls class consciousness. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, so you know, it's another thing that we we confront in school systems too the the way in which the school itself um, works overtime to to sort of negate worker education, negate the idea that you're even a worker, that there's such a thing as a worker consciousness. Um, so you know, to try to say no to public school is a difficult thing, right? To say to no to the way schools re- reproduce those kinds of systems. Citizens and re- reproduce the thinking that goes into this capitalist society. That's what happens there. As you say, you've got a principal, you've got a system principal, you've got a dean of students, you've got teachers, you've got you know this this massive hierarchy of of, of power. Uh, students themselves having zero power. Then you have cliques in schools too that replicate wealth divisions also. So the school itself is a, a laboratory for, uh, you could just go in and see how that the world works, right? This world in particular and how the working class is not even spoken of. It's a, it's disappeared even in schools within that, that hierarchy. Right. I mean, James Lowen, you know, did, did a great you know, and lies my teacher told me did some great research to basically look at social studies textbooks, mm-hmm. right? And Mississippi mm-hmm. or something like that. And basically, he he lays out that um, all of the textbooks do not even use the term working class in them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of class, the only way they 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 bring up class is that everyone is middle class, right? Right. right. <laughs> they assume or striving to be, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so there's really that that shift in. Um, and, and I would say, you know, during the 80s, that was definitely a, a push by Reagan and other folks really, you know, getting rid of International Workers Day and trying to change it to Law Day and mm-hmm. then, like, all those different things that kind of um, spark that sort of um, that, that dominant way of thinking of, of pushing, pushing aside um, sort of class consciousness or any of those sorts of things. You're listening to Interchange. Our show is Anarchy in Education, and our guest is Robert Hayworth, who points out the once prevalent mode of informal learning in the early 20th century, when an Emma Goldman speech would be attended by the thousands. You had that knowledge, right, in the early 20th century and those sorts of things, where you had tens of thousands of people um, coming and uh, listening to Emma Goldman, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like you had you know thousands of people coming out and, and reading and reading, you know, some of the the pamphlets that were coming out. I mean, mm-hmm. those sorts of things were people were really enlightened in those sorts of things, and and part of it was informal, right? I mean, there was a lot of learning that was going. I mean, if you look at uh, some of the um, the recent, I can't remember her name now. Um, she had a University of Hawaii. She wrote that book on Emma Goldman, the political theory. Oh, with Kathy Ferguson. Yeah, there, yeah, there's some interesting, uh, just brief discussions in there about 
sort of the learning that was going on in um, just gatherings on the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. You know, anarchists would come and have like informal discussions or in coffee shops or those sorts of things that, that really helped kind of gather that sort of information and, and class consciousness, not, not even, not just during the week, you know, where they're working 10, 12, 15 hours, you know, mm-hmm. but on the weekends of really kind of developing that. And I think those are the sort of spaces that are really, I think that are, we need to hold on to and continue to, you know, work towards. Cause you know, when we look at those spaces, how much work, uh, can be done in that, that short of time or even, even on the weekends, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, um, so I think there's, you know, and even in the shifts in work now and, and labor now is, is where the weekend is gone. You know what I mean? Like where a lot of that stuff is gone. So it's like we have to really find out ways to to sort of intervene in those um, daily workflows, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, you're working against so many things here, right? The the difficult thing is is working against all these engines operating towards a different goal. Uh, you know, pointing again back in time to the to reading texts that sound exactly like what what's you know been talked about or being talked about continually now as well. As as we said already, we shifted with education into education as a market, uh, information and knowledge being commodities. Uh, these kinds of things continued to be the way we think about uh, work now, or capitalist work and uh, the production of that kind of, um, I guess, monetary gain. One of the things that struck me is the. Um, I guess it was from 1912. It's in your introduction to, I think, Out of the Ruins, which is the informal, radical informal learning spaces that has a, like a quote from a, a superintendent or, or yeah. you know, that, that sounds exactly like something you could have just read yesterday, right? Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, let, let me just read a couple of these things. So this is from 1912. It's Joseph Taylor, district superintendent of, the, of schools in New York City. One, the state as employer must cooperate with the teacher as employee for the latter does not always understand the science of education. It's nice and <laughs> condescending. Two, the state provides experts who supervise the teacher and suggest the processes that are most efficacious and economical. Three, the task system obtains in the school as well as in the shop each grade being a measured quantity of work to be accomplished in a given term. For every teacher who accomplishes the task receives a bonus, not in money, but in the form of a rating, which may have money value. Five, those who are unable to do the work are eliminated. <laughs> so, so I got to tell you, I read that I about spit out my coffee. I was like, oh my God, that is, that is not only just horrifying, but exactly what you're confronting today. This is 1912. So over a hundred years ago, this is the same practice. You know, this is the same thing. Measurement and, and Goldman, you know, Emma Goldman and her, her essay points this out too. quantity over quality, uh, creating soulless automatons in, in, in school to be soulless automatons in the workplace. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, to me, that's when, when I show students that they, they're just, you know, they're blown away too. And in, in many cases, mm-hmm. there's like, we're talking about the same sort of conversations, you know, when they're going in and they're getting rated in terms of their pre-service teaching, you know, they're, they're getting, you know, these sort of tools that give the sort of check marks on, you know, where they're, where, you know, where they are in their pre are they, have they mastered this or are they, you know, still learning to get there? And, and a lot of this accountability, right. Is, is, has been going on for quite some time. It's that efficiency model, the sort of scientific management, right you know, how much coal can you put into the, into the fire in, in how many minutes? And that's really, you know, when, when I talk to students about it, I, I ask them too, how many of you have had time tests, right? Mm-hmm. 
you know, with the stopwatch and those sort of things, and they raise their hand, I go, well, this stems from somewhere, right? I mean, why do you do that? What if, what if a student does their timetables in five minutes as opposed to three, and they get them all right in general anyways? I mean, what does that mean? Does it mean this person's inefficient? And I think that's, that's something that's really difficult for people to grasp is that, you know, we, we really have that continued tailorism, right, within the sort of educational system. Mm-hmm. Um, that and, and really, I think, to be honest, you know, bulls and guineas are probably right in terms of the sort of parallels between our education system and our economic one. Right. Um, and I want to move towards some of this idea, too, is that, yes, I, I, I disagree with with public education. But I also know that it's there's anarchists at work in public education mm-hmm. that I know. Right. And that I somehow need to support them on, on the one hand, you know, and support at what they're doing mm-hmm. in terms of. Uh, developing those sort of spaces uh, for those students. But on the other hand, we also need to, we need to develop examples, right? Pro- continued projects to um, really think about teaching and learning in a way that transforms ourselves and the larger society and, and um, not, not waiting for some sort of larger revolution, but to do these sorts of things in the here and now, right? Mm-hmm. We need to have these sorts of things. And so I think, I think I point out in the sort of, introduction of those things is like there's sort of a, a sort of a fork you know or a sort of dual duality that we're trying to deal with is like one hand we're trying to create something new and contesting sort of state institution those sort of things but on the other hand we have to support our brothers and sisters and in, in, in working in in those sort of spaces it's time for a break you're listening to interchange on wfhb our show today is anarchy in education with guest robert hayworth here's i know there is love off of Christ, the album by Crass. Stay with us. Think I was born this wretched earth for you to go and anchor. In your stinking fetches and offices, your student system and skills. See, I've got nothing better to do than to grow up in a sh and a crap. Ask for the bread and homeless, why don't wait for a pat on the back? See, I've got nothing better to do than to live in a life to give. Got us involved unless the gates play God for the fact that I live. You took me to make a man. By making me strong, bad as hands Come on when I saw this is less And I spoke to the strong, no one had guessed Too drawn to love by the moment to take Woman to serve your love is just right Need my children to hold this thought Despite your rules, no matter to your call I give them food and two cellular shots I don't need goodness when it's on your stars Take my hope, your s**t benevolence Take my leave your soul, you dependent Don't let's deal with our witches out Take myself a name and care Stop my vision with the principal authority To the hopes for this fake strangling Get the confusion of sin I've learned So I bail the odds and never get burned I say I just do to you to take my breath You send me mercy to leave no choice Take my eyes and stop the sins And abuse destruction I'll judge me free Take my thinking, my means survival Press my hand and I'll tell you a Bible Told me to kill but I know that I'm bad Give me aid when I know there's love Told me to kill but I know that I'm bad Give me aid when I know there's love Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is Anarchy in Education with Rob Hayworth, editor of Out of the Ruins, The Emergence of Radical Informal Learning Spaces, published by PM Press. We'll begin this segment with an illustration of how schools model authority and submission in the elementary grades.
Well, I have a personal story. For a brief period here, I uh, I worked at an elementary school as what they call here, I believe, an interventionist. They also had a term called preventionist, and these were basically mm -hmm. aid positions. At one point, I was um, just kind of observing the day, right? The kids were running up and down the hallway. This was, again, I think these were like second and third graders, maybe maybe younger even. I think there, <clears throat> there might have been some first graders in there. But they were they were, you know... A little rowdy, let's say, right? Right, right. And, uh, you know, one kid's just kind of dancing up and down the hall, talking to himself, and the principal comes out of his office and basically yells at everybody, right? He's a, a good, you know, a, reg a regular sort of athletic, you know, six-foot-tall athletic man who just kind of yells at everybody. And this one kid who's literally enjoying his life at that moment, right, immediately is like, you know, chastised and, and made to feel like this tiny little person who's in trouble by this giant man, Right. And that's the lesson you learn in school. Yeah. That's it. You, you yeah. may learn to add, you may learn what money is, you know, you may yeah. be able to read or spell, but your primary lesson is that one. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's authority, right? It's yeah. based, yeah, doing those sorts of things and, and watching this sort of, um, and basically assimilating to the sort of larger mm -hmm. society. Some people call it learning the game of education, right? right. You learn to navigate through the system as you feel like you're, you're basically wanting to explode, especially as a young person. And that, and that's for me, again, that's what punk rock helped me mm -hmm. be able to a be myself, but be uh, kind of working through areas of frustrations towards, you know, the system that I was living under. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, um, and those sort of tensions between living this middle class lifestyle, but also having, you know, punk music to say, this is a bunch of shit, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> those contradictions, continue on to today right you know mm -hmm. so you like you begin to start going you know for me i work in education for me i, I it's really and many times difficult to to talk to pre-service teachers and, and folks that like that are getting getting into the field right mm -hmm. that a lot of times they go well, i get into teaching because i love children i'm like well <laughs> that that's not going to get you past the first year okay like what happens when you don't like any of the kids in your class, right? And you're having difficulties working with them, right? You know, and, and you're having difficulties like, you know, communicating, building community, those sorts of things. And I go, loving children doesn't going to get you there. You're going to basically have to really kind of work through like, what am I doing? You know, being self-reflective and those sorts of things. And, and, and that's why we have such a large turnover too. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about like, you know, being in that position, right? right. You know, you have, 47% of the teachers are leaving within the first, what, three to five years or something yeah. like that, maybe a little bit longer. But, um, you know, people just don't want to, I mean, you just can't, the, the pressure and the work that goes on with it. And then, right. you know, put on top of that, you know, with the LA uh, teachers strike about smaller class sizes and stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there's some things that we can really, you know, again, support them on those sorts of things, but it's like, you know, this is what, where education is moving towards. Mm -hmm. Right. And, 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 and draining the sort of educational funding and those sorts of things and saying the state's going and federal government saying we don't have any money. And the reality is like, yeah, yeah we, <laughs> we have plenty of money. Right. <laughs> we, we just, you know, we put it in other sort of places. Right. right? right. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Anarchy in Education with Rob Hayworth, former punk rocker and proponent of radical, informal learning spaces, who talks about how education should be participatory and situated in respect to community interests. 
the utopian is necessary, right? Because you, if you begin to think of the impossibilities of sort of fighting the entire system, which is what you begin to worry about, you know, how do I do this within the system? You begin to think, oh, I can't do it. And then you just, as you say, try to make, try to play the game, right? Try right. to play the game of education. All kids who do well in school have learned to play the game, right? Yeah. Or, you know, their parents have taught them to play the game or that, you know, all these things make it possible. And so what's, what's most important, it seems, uh, is that you have to confront these issues in all aspects of life. But learning is something that we kind of, I don't know, we don't think about or talk about very much, right? It's, it's something we put behind us, even though all of us kind of pay lip service to, well, if you're not learning, you're, you know, you're, you're not growing or you're not, you know, you're not going to change who you are or whatnot. Right. So what what is a radical learning space and how is it different than than education as we see it yeah i mean i think i think part of it, there's a few examples and, and this is again why I, I i feel the need to develop and work with uh people that are doing these spaces right and and uh across the planet you know in terms of doing uh, doing this work is that you know, it's, it's situated, right? You know, so we have to understand that learning is situated, right? From a cultural standpoint, from political standpoint, those sorts of things. And so situated in, in just means that it has a contextual nature to it. It has, you know, it happens in one place and one time and, and, you know, and is framed in a certain way. Yeah. So, so like, for example, we have like no child left behind for our sort of national policy or, um, common core, those sorts of things that have this sort of standard across the board that everyone has to learn this and this amount of time and these sorts of things. And they need to meet these goals at these, or they're failing, right? Mm -hmm. um, education in terms of radical sort of spaces and formal spaces would be more or less a, a, an area that we'd have that situated, like whatever those needs of that community is, whatever those sorts of space needs. So you know, in one of the books, it talks about a group of people that did a free school in, in, uh, I think it was Minneapolis, um, and really talking about, you know, any, having courses there anywhere from like learning English, uh, for, for immigrant folks, but also learning how to uh, fix bikes to learning about capitalism under, mm -hmm. <laughs> in our economic system and critiquing it, right? There's, so there's classes across the board and really it's generated by the community, like what they wanted to have in this space. D does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so those sorts of things, and, and really, you know, for me, I, I, you know, I saw that in a lot of sense is, is also those sort of spaces really develop a sort of participatory practice that, that I think is, was, has always been interesting to me. Like, you know, I remember going and playing at Gilman street warehouse in, in the eighties, I think it was early nineties, um, up in, in, in Berkeley. And, uh, you know, during the day they, they were like, Hey, we're going to have this meeting and they're discussing, you know, violence at the, at the, uh, the venue and how they can kind of curtail it, but also how they can work together to create a better space for people to go, you know, use and, and to play at and those sorts of things, have a better experience. Um, and that was a learn, that's an informal learning process, but it was developed through sort of a, a consensus model and those sorts of things that, uh, they felt based upon sort of anarchist sort of practices. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, all those sorts of things are situated, right? So it's not just they replicated, 
something from another place, but they've, they've gotten some ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And then here's how we can be able to, how how we can kind of expand our learning processes through that. So Mm -hmm. it's very ground up, you know, in terms of like asking the community, Hey, do you want to teach a class or, Hey, do you want to, what types of classes would you want at this space or, you know, those sorts of things. And that, that would be, you know, sort of that informal process, but it's also a sort of situated space because there's different demographics, there's different uh, sort of economic issues and those sorts of things and needs, right? So I think that's the sort of beginning point of where, and, and it can expand from there, right? It's time for another break. This is Where Next, Columbus, from the 1981 album Penis Envy by Crass. Stay with us for more on subverting the ideology of the state with our guest Rob Hayworth when Interchange returns on WFHB. back. I'm Doug Storm and this is Interchange. We're talking about how learning can and should be something more than compulsory indoctrination into bureaucratic power structures serving an authoritarian agenda. In this segment, I use the suspect term vanguard and we talk about how pedagogy can be a practice of solidarity in the workplace. have to have a kind of constant, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, sort of the educational uh, vanguard, you know, uh, uh, groups that continue to teach and bring those teaching uh, opportunities into other communities and then talk about how that teaching uh, ties to your daily life. You know, I, I don't know these spaces at all myself. I, I've not been in one. I don't know uh, if you if you have a, a class on bicycle repair, if you can always or should always bring in critique at the same time, you know, so at the same, you know, so that people that are there not to learn about anti-capitalism perhaps <laughs> might hear a few of those terms somehow, right? Like there's, right, right. yeah, there's just got to be a constant, a constant recreation of those critiques. Right. And, and I think, um, you know, that 
well, there's one example I remember uh, living in Los Angeles. You know, for example, the bus riders union uh, that were there that were connecting the sort of packed buses, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, to sardines and you know, a can, those sorts of things. Um, but they were. I remember being at a, a Zapatista, you know, uh, kind of rally at the Mexican consulate there. And they were there in full support. And it was just really interesting mm. and their connections to be able to connect their basically situation with being sardines on a bus, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> being, you know, to the work of the Zapatistas, right? Mm-hmm. And so those sorts of things I think are are very important. And I think there's some really interesting things uh, that that kind of coincide with that. Um I mean, you brought up the, the term vanguard. I, I, you know, I, I don't like to always use that term just because I think it has some connotations that that there's some sort of, you know, if you read sort of Lenin's work on that, it's a really interesting thing because he's saying that there's a certain class of people, intellectual class, that's basically going to, because the working class people are unable to, mm-hmm. you know, work through these ideas as opposed to, you know, some of the people were already, you know, some of the workers there were already engaged in reading philosophy and stuff like that, even prior to, uh, and during the, uh, the Bolshevik revolution. Right. I think, uh, a lot of times we, we, we lose sight of those sorts of things. Um, you know, for example, I worked, uh, you know, with the Western Shoshone, like folks, you know, years ago and, and, you know, in terms of indigenous sort of knowledge, it's like, you know, we don't, in a society don't look at that, that, that work or that sort of, uh, learning as something that's, uh, I guess, prevalent within our society because mm-hmm. it's Western ways of thinking. Um, and again, knowledge in many cases are, are placed in sort of a hierarchy, you know? And so that sort of information, that sort of teaching and learning is important, especially, and that becomes in a lot of sense informal, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of the practices that are going on in some of those things and how I learned, right. You know, how I learned about, Columbus and those sorts of things were outside of the classroom, right? I mean, it was, it was definitely outside of how I was doing that. So I, for me, I'm like interested in like how are others learning outside of this to become conscious about the world around them, right? You know, whether it be class, you know, racial aspects, um, uh, you know, other other aspects on sexism. Those are, how are we learning about those things outside of our uh, sort of dominant practices within public institutions because we're not learning about it there, right? <laughs> we're not right. Learning about, I mean, because you know, we still have you know high school kids you know running around with MAGA hats, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, that's what they're learning. So yeah, that's that's exactly right. So, but that that does express the difficulty, right? That that you have to combat those learning structures, which are, um, you know, uh, embedded, endemic, whatever you want to call it, you're, you're struggling against, uh, you know, years and years and years of, of propaganda and training that we refuse to call the name, right? We ref- right. Education is clearly propaganda, right? It's yeah. clearly training yeah. for a certain thing. And no one uses the term ever yeah. right no one ever says well we're really just training your kid to put his head down and get to work or you know <laughs> uh, it's really all we're doing here and if they get a college education great because they're just going to put their head down and go to work um, right. and not bother anybody uh, so you know trying to understand these things uh, I, I guess I gravitate a little bit more to the idea of these radical spaces you know this informal learning because it seems to me the most openness you know the most open opportunity uh, I think the that that 
that seems plausible, right? Uh, I think that some of the terms used in the book, uh, was it bell hooks is the radical openness. And I think you mentioned Paulo uh, Freire already in terms of radical love. So these are, these are terms that, you know, if you're, I hate to say it, but if you're a conservative in America, probably if you're a man in America, for the most part, you, you don't say radical openness or radical love and get people running, running to sign up for it. You're listening to Anarchy and Education on WFHB. Our guest, Rob Hayworth, discusses Paolo Freire's insistence on humility, checking your certainty and privilege at the door. Part of this, too, is, is when I talk about volunt- you know, when the idea of voluntary mm-hmm. aspect, but also the idea is that is that we need to make a concerted effort when we go into these learning spaces, like these these spaces that, in many many cases, we lose sight of that sort of humility, right? And mm-hmm. as Paulo Freire talks about, it, I always tell people like, you know, a lot of the a lot of these folks that read Paulo Freire, they forget his discussion on humility, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and 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 that sort of humility basically enables you to be open to. Um, new ideas and new ways of thinking and also ways that might contest your, you know, kind of concrete ideologies or your sort of, you know, movement in your head. And and I think for me, it's that that's always been there for me, like, you know, and it's like, and, but it's also takes a lot of work, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's not, that's not encouraged at all in school, right. In public schools, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that would be looked upon as weak or, you know, you're not, competing with your fellow, you know, student to basically get into the better school. Um, you're debating them as opposed to kind of better understanding each other, you know, those sorts of mm-hmm. things. So you lose sight of them. Really, uh, the ability to actually learn, right? I mean, you actually and, right. and learn about not only yourself, but also about others and how they view the, the world. And that, and that openness really helps, helps us kind of think in different ways, really outside of sort of, uh, you know, in many cases outside of Western thinking, outside of uh, uh, sort of uh, linear ways of, of, of viewing the world and those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that, that helps it. And it's a different approach, right, to mm-hmm. um, really thinking about teaching and learning. And, and I think Freire is right in terms of like, you know, being able to have that flipping or that sort of back and forth of the student and the teacher relationship being that they can be they can change, right? Mm-hmm. The teacher, the, the learner, the student can be the teacher. And, and those are always for me, at least in these sort of spaces are, I guess, uh, exposed, right. You mm-hmm. know, so, um, I used to have this professor that always talked about, Hey, I'm going to use my authority to work through these ideas for a minute, you know? And so it, and, and really it, it, when he uses that sort of language, it actually, it, it demonstrated the the sort of authority that was going on in the classroom or the sort of, you know, the, uh, that we never really think about. We Mm -hmm. just kind of assume it's there and, but, you know, we don't really question it, but he, just him saying that enabled Mm -hmm. us to really question the sort of hierarchical uh, nature of of the classroom. Right. So, um, and I think that was really helpful for me, at least like as thinking about the Mm -hmm. teacher, uh, student relationship. That's pretty interesting. I, I never really thought about that as a, a tactic, but it, sh- it sure do, it sure would make sense if, as long as you continue to kind of talk about it, right? And it didn't right. just become a, a tick, right? That, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah. It was because I mean the thing is, he would sit back and just like after the first day, he just talked about the syllabus, mm-hmm. 
and how we could negotiate, you know, anything in it or what, how we wanted to move forward. Mm-hmm. And, and then the next class, he just sat there mm-hmm. and just basically everyone just sitting there going, what's going on? Like, and so finally, after about five minutes, someone stepped up and said, so I think today we should talk about this, this and this and, and, and really started going through like what some of the readings that we we're kind of engaged in mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and really ran the class. So from there on out, he just basically sat back and, and, um, and in, in certain cases, you know, again, talked about his sort of, uh, you know, authorities like, Hey, I'm going to you know, intervene. And especially there were some things that some students brought up that needed to be questioned, right. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of their own perspective and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and is, yes, yeah, is kind of an interesting, uh, uh dynamic. And yeah. again, it's, deal but it's you know in terms of like you know the especially living under the larger sort of bureaucratic system of the state school it's just right. a matter of uh, i think just pedagogically i think is, is it changes the sort of dynamic of the classroom quite well, you know, one of the things that strikes me is th- is that we have these opportunities outside of school that are tied to school also and i'm not sure that they would if they would stop being possible if they were turned to radical pedagogy, right? If they were turned to clearly discuss these power dynamics, right? So, you know, if you imagine this probably isn't going to happen in after-school soccer programs. Um, <laughs> uh, it's probably not going to happen on the football team. It's probably not going to happen uh, in, in places like that. But you obviously have other kinds of, um, you know, get-togethers uh, with clubs at schools and things of that nature. seems to me a viable place to kind of sneak in there and talk about how you do things together in that way also. Um, but the, the idea, I think it's a great idea, you know, how to how to sort of teach in an open or have the openness of, of communication between a student and a teacher as if there's not, there doesn't need to be the authority. The authority is, is a helping one, I suppose, to say, well, we could go in this direction or not. These are some pitfalls, et cetera. You know, let's, let's, let's have you decide what we might want to try. Um, you know, that, as you said, I think before, these are relational situations, right? right? These right. are the important things. The teacher isn't just, you know, some, somebody that stands up there and tells you to do something and gives you a grade. We should be creating these relational spaces. But we run back again into this structure itself. Too many students, too little time. It's yeah. a, it's still a factory system. We all know this, yeah. don't we? Yeah. I mean, don't we all know this? It's time for our final break. This is You Can Be Who? off of Christ, the album, by Crass. When we return, more on schooling in capitalist America and how state education replicates class divisions. Stay with us. Life, I'm a real, it's a magazine. Come from the start, but hang on to the life. 
This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Anarchy in Education, and our guest is Rob Hayworth, editor of Anarchist Pedagogies, Collective Actions, Theories, and Critical Reflections on Education, published by PM Press. In this final segment, we'll talk about the crumbs rewarded by class division and what American free thought activist Voltairine Declare called the interest of the statesman in education. Hint. It's not human flourishing. Let's imagine there's a middle class that clearly understands that education is a factory system. And let's imagine there's even a lower, let's say a, a lower economic, so, you know, socioeconomic class that understands that school is just like policing. Yep. You know, so they both understand something is wrong with it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but the thing is, is, is some are getting, you know, the breadcrumbs. Well, I mean, you know, it's, sure. and, you know, Bowles and Gentis, again, you know, talk about that sort of idea is like, you know, you have, and, and also if you look at the sort of class structure, it's like, you know, working class people and poor working class people know they're getting a poor education, right? Mm-hmm. They know that they're getting um, an, a policing education. And, um, and I think that's, uh, you know, where you c- can't even recognize the difference between a prison and a school, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, and that's, the, it's like the people, like people are knowing that, right? You know, right. and then when you have middle class folks, th- th- they're basically looking at themselves as middle management, right? That's I mean, right. Like, that's right. I'm still getting the breadcrumbs, you know, um, right. those sorts of things. I'm still getting some, some sort of privilege over, um, these poor and working class people. And then you have these sort of elite, you know, and I mentioned my, with my students, you know, George Bush, you know, uh, George W, you know, he went to a school at basically a private, private school for high school, you know, that had basically one faculty member to five students. Right. right? I mean, it's just like, and it was a sort of red sort of carpet to Ivy league schools, which he went to. Right. You know, uh, with a, like what a C plus average or well, something. Well, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant how he does. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Because right. he's going to be in charge, right? right. I mean, there's just right. like, there's no question about it. And so you have these sort of these developments of class lines within our schools, and that's just basically what you know how people are going to do. I mean, I mean, I was just reading the the sort of integral education, you know, by Michael Bakunin. You know, it's, it's like at, you know, he talks about that same sort of thing. You know, like you know, it's you know, we have those sort of class education. Some people are getting education for intellectual sort of curiosity and being able to um, go to schools and go to universities and those sort of things. I mean, I mean, even Thomas Jefferson, like believed in this sort of, you know, the sort of one, how you get the, the top cream of the crop and you're going to put those folks to, um, to, uh, to universities and, and sending them overseas and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a, a period of breeding and eugenics as well. So, 
Right. <laughs> at least they all, these all dovetail together nicely. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. It's like in World War One. it's like you do poorly in the IQ test, you're going to be cannon fodder. And then the mm. people that well, them are writing letters about, you know, right. and managing the cannon fodder. Right? Yep. You know, so until we look at education, our education system as that sort of um, – uh, sort of funneling, you know, mm-hmm. mechanisms for society and that sort of reproduction in society, mm-hmm. we, we, we definitely are going to continue on with that. Yeah. And, well, I think that you're, you know, again, I think the stress here to me anyway is, is continually on a person to person relationship. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, the more we move in this particular society, even though the more we, we move towards our, our catastrophe of, of climate doom, uh, we continue to push into technological spaces that reduce further any person to person contact. Right. So right. I think for me, the greatest worry I have had as a, as a parent is that the majority of my children's learning, I think, goes on in YouTube, Twitter, uh, what social media world that isn't that has that veneer of social. Mm-hmm. but is not relational, right? It's not person to person. It's right. it's digitally mediated in such a horrifying way that it can almost appear as if you're autonomous and individual and strong mm-hmm. and creative and all these things, but you're just following the clicks and, you know, bleeps and, and the approvals of your friend or disapprovals right. of your friends. Uh, it's such an amazing, amazing technology to sort of ruin all people. Yeah, and and, and that's, you know... There's been books written about that um, recently, and, and I think there's a few people I can bring up, but it's the idea is the crisis of the imagination, right? The idea yeah. is that um, we we actually only imagine within the, the confines of state and capitalist sort of you know propriety, you know, right. Right? You, in terms of making money or having you know commodity or those sorts of things. We don't think about imagination, and and those sorts of things are curtailed by the sort of corporatization of, of sort of online learning and those sorts of things and interactions and stuff like that. Right. And so, so young people are not imagining the world differently. I mean, they are in some cases, but in many cases are in the con- confines of that sort of market driven sort of um, spaces that they're mm-hmm. operating. Mm-hmm. Right. So they don't, they, and it's, and again, I think getting back to your point is like that relationship is, is crucial, you know, in terms of, you know, how we interact with people. I mean, the anxiety levels, I mean, it's of, of, of young people and, and people in general. I mean, people are, I think there was a, a study is like they're stopping the, uh, in some cases, major sort of uh, medical sort of things on, on cancer research and those sorts of things, but then funneling their money towards anxiety. Right. Right. <laughs> and how do you curtail the anxiety of living under this really crazy system, right. Mm-hmm. That we operate in, you know, and I think that's, that's something where, you know, a lot of people are, we're losing sight of is, is that we're, we're, you know, of, of that sort of relationship that we need to have with, with one another. You're listening to Interchange. My guest is Robert Hayworth, and we're talking about subverting the authoritarian power structures that inhere in compulsory bureaucratic state and corporate education so that we can learn something more than submission to so-called leaders. What I love about those informal spaces that I grew up in was, you know, going to shows and like having those spaces, basically not having anything of corporate sort of value. Nothing is like, 
you know, having $5 shows or, you know, whatever sliding scale you could have to get in. Mm -hmm. You'd have, you know, tables there with, you know, information and books that were um, completely uh, challenging the this, this sort of uh, ideas and, and, and dominant perspectives about the world um, and how to basically do something different, right, which I thought was great. They, they had other ideas of how we do that. And then having that, that conversation with those people, like that's what I, I, I really enjoyed about it. That's how I got involved with, you know, so many like uh, different organizations and stuff like that was really through that sort of process of like, mm-hmm. you know, someone's tabling or even publishing, you know, I've known some of the people in the, you know, the people in PM press, I've known some for a long time because it's all do their tabling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, and, and for, from shows to, uh, events and those sorts of things. Right. So, and it was those conversations that helped, helped me grow as a human and it helped me grow as a, um, uh, an interested person in, the, in changing the world and those sorts of things and and ha- how we operate. So I thought that was a really um, those those sort of things are really important and mm-hmm. and and we don't see that enough, right? In terms of we see it in some cases, but it's it's always difficult and it gets shut down in many cases or in in a lot a lot of terms commodified into something that you <laughs> you thought you thought was going to be, but it changes you know the dynamics because as soon as it gets out there in the world, it you know. Uh, the tentacles of, of capitalism basically get into it. It's like, yeah. hey, can we can sell this thing? Yeah, you know, that's, so, right. that's right. And that's part of that was punk rock too. It's like, yeah, oh, of course, I can sell that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, to 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 bring this to a close, uh, Rob, the the um, I think in in one of the essays. Uh, it talks about uh, the, I guess it's uh, Ivan Illich's uh, sort of de-schooling movement, uh, and, and you know we just to, to sort of hit these highlights again, uh, the things that are you know at, at, at basic you have to have in school, uh, uh, sort of for the individual an autonomy, a self-directed learning, uh, active learning for the community. There has to be participation, mutual aid, political action, and structurally no you know decentralized management, no hierarchical relationship. Relationships, right. So this is the basis of a, a kind of anarchist pedagogy. Yeah, it's a, it's a beginning point. And, and right. again, there's there's other folks that are doing other things differently, but it's it's that's it's at least a beginning point um, that we can work from and start from, because that's that's really a lot of the basis of what where people are where people have started from, right, right historically. Right. We need to uh, clearly begin, as as we've already talked about here, the conversation from 1906, 1912, et cetera, is the same conversation. We're, you know, we're still having to begin to to discuss these things and, and to try to have more uh, more reach, right? Some more reach in, in the communities and, and instead of going in the other direction. Yeah, and, and you know, I... I I bring up the uh, Voltaire de Claire uh, mm-hmm. in her work um, because I think she she brings up this idea of the statesman, right? You know, this idea that the statesman has nothing to do with education, but they're they they want to generate citizens that have particular characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and society. And this was written, you know, again in the early twentieth century, right? Uh, we move to today. This sort of new statesman, and as as I think is important to point out is the sort of hedge fund folks that, you know, the people that are, you know, especially at the corporate level that are really dismantling, you know, the sort of uh, public education, but also dismantling uh, and trying to move to privatize 
and again, create a certain citizen, the characteristics within a citizen, right? Right. Um, And that means a corporate (laughs) sort of aspects to it. And Mm -hmm. so I think there's, there's gonna be challenges that, you know, again, that I think that we're going to need those sort of examples as we move forward and, and see how the sort of liberal structures begin to unravel um, to have those examples for us to look towards uh, in the future or as we move towards the future is, is to see what, what people are doing now. Because I think in, in the sort of transitions to you, you brought up sort of climate change and those sorts of things, I think there's going to be a need for those spaces those educational spaces for us to to gravitate towards in order for us to to learn really what is going on right mm-hmm. and also build those relationships that are needed in our communities that are are basically tearing us uh, apart in many cases right. so um so with those spaces i think that we could, i think those are those are beginning points of, of examples right of, of uh, interventions within that sort of larger grand sort of narrative of, of education that we, we we view it as right mm-hmm. so I think there's some really interesting uh, spaces and, I, and that's why I say is I want to continue to to kind of work on projects that are really working to um, uh, expose uh, have some exposure to people that have never read about that stuff before and right. I think that's for me it's been some really interesting conversations that from teacher standpoint to you know activist standpoints that's our show. We'll close with a final song from the anarcho-punk band Crass. This is Systematic Death, one more from Penis Envy. Thanks to Robert Hayworth for his insights into anarchy and education. He's the editor of two titles from PM Press, Anarchist Pedagogies and Out of the Ruins, The Emergence of Radical Informal Learning Spaces. Next time on Interchange, Francisco Ferrer and the Modern School Movement. Ferrer was executed in Spain in 1909 for suspicion of insurrection against the Spanish king, and he quickly became an international martyr to the cause of free thought in opposition to religious dogma and compulsory education at the hands of the state and the church. Mark Bray is our guest. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. System, system, system.